0: The scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 and 16 through 19. It can be found on page 746 in the Black Bibles. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asarsis, by descent Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book, books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of jerusalem namely 70 years then i turned my face to the lord god seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes i prayed to the lord my god and made confession saying "O lord the great and awesome god who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh God, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning to you. Thank you, Jamie, and uh, thank you, Mike, and Stephen as well for that beautiful... uh, We are continuing along the path of uh, Daniel, and we are a little bit out of the prophecy realm this morning and into a prayer that Daniel prays on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people of Israel, So let me now pray and ask God uh, to help us as we consider this part of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do pray and we thank you for your great mercy and your great love. We ask, oh God, that you would meet with us during this time, that you would instruct us from your word and that you would change us and that you would send us into this world as your people to serve you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My life of crime uh, began and ended on the same day. Um, I was six years old, and I was running errands with my father, and one of the errands that we ran was to the Kroger grocery store um, on the corner of Old Canton Road and I-55 in Jackson, Mississippi, where I grew up. And my father had a list, and and he shops like I do. If it's on the list, he gets it. If it's not on the list, he doesn't get it. Uh, So when you come back, you know, and uh, my mom would say, why didn't you get this? And he would say, it's not on the list. That's how the men in the Holland family do things. He got things on the list, and we were in line uh, waiting to check out. And out of the corner of my eye, in the checkout line, I saw a pack of Juicy Fruit. I loved Juicy. I still love Juicy fruits. good gum. Um, And I wanted it. I really wanted it. And so I asked my dad, dad, may I please have a pack of juicy fruit? And he looked at me and he said, no, son, not today. We're not getting juicy fruit. Uh, Besides, we have some at home. So, if you can just wait a few minutes until we get home, you can have some juicy fruit. But waiting was the last thing on my mind at that moment. There was no way I was going to be able to wait for the juicy fruit. So, my dad turned around. I looked around. There was nobody looking. Nothing was happening in the Kroger. So, I reached out, grabbed the juicy fruit, stuck it in my pocket. And I had succeeded. It was like, it was, a, it was a fascinating feeling. I was like, wow, I just stole something and nobody saw it. This is amazing. I'm good at this. Except that I wasn't really good. I wasn't a very smart thief because on the way from the front door of the store to the car, I pulled it out of my pocket and I unwrapped it and I took a piece out and I put it in my mouth and my dad looked at me and said, where'd you get that gum? And I, I froze and I said, it was in my pocket, which was a lie, but also true at the same time, you know, because it was in my pocket, but it's not where I, it's not where I had it. And so my dad didn't say anything. He just grabbed me by the hand. He turned me around and we walked back into the store. We went up to the customer service desk. And he asked for the manager. The manager came. I think that guy was seven and a half feet tall, I promise. And my dad made me stand in front of the manager with a pack of gum and, you know, try to tell him that I had stolen it. It was incoherent. I was crying so hard. I was stammering. I couldn't say anything. I just held out my hand. He took the gum. I put my other hand out because I thought he was going to slap the cuffs on me, you know, and take me away. But he didn't. He just took the gum. He turned around. He walked away. My dad said, let's go. We got in the car. We went home. He didn't say anything about it anymore. Um, we never talked about it again. But I never actually stole anything uh, physical again. I think in the realm of the Ten Commandments, I've stolen lots of things, but, uh, uh, but, but not, you know, physically. I've never stolen any other merchandise again in my life. And in retrospect, I think that this was a wise approach that my dad took. Because it certainly had his intended effect on my life, right? But there was a pattern to this act of discipline that could only have been effective... In the context of a relationship, a relationship that we had, a relationship of love, there was a transgression and a sin, so to speak. There was the theft of a pack of gum. There was a consequence to that transgression, having to go back into the store, having to face the store manager, having to return the gum. There was repentance. There was saying that I was sorry for stealing the gum and and trying to give it back. There was restoration, that my father did not sever his relationship with me based upon my act of disobedience. Rather, he continued to love me and continued to care for me. And he did not hold this incident over my head for the rest of my life. Now this could only happen in the context of a relationship that he, that he had established with me in love. Prayer, the act of prayer, the, 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 the act of human beings talking to God, which is what prayer is, is all over the Bible as an essential privilege that is afforded to followers of Jesus. But if you think about it, prayer's a mysterious thing, isn't it? It's a very mysterious thing. And, and if you think about it even further, I mean, it's a hard thing. We're super busy, right? We're busy people. We, we live in a city that tells you that you make your own self. You make yourself. You don't need anybody else. You don't need anything else. You make your life. And prayer's pretty hard, but it's extraordinarily powerful to you. Daniel 9 is a chapter about Prayer. And the first part of this chapter, which Jamie read for us this morning, is the content of Daniel's prayer. The second part, which we're going to examine and talk about next week, is about God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Because God does hear him, and he does answer him. But the fascinating and awesome thing about this is that Daniel didn't just pray this prayer. Daniel wrote this prayer down. This was during the time of King Darius. This was after the Babylonians had been defeated by the Persians. Darius was the same leader who sent Daniel to the lion's den. We talked the, we, we, we had a sermon on this back in chapter six. Do you remember why Daniel sent, why Darius sent Daniel to the lion's den? He sent Daniel to the lion's den because Daniel stubbornly insisted on praying to God. Praying to God and not to him. And so one of these possible prayers that Daniel prays is recorded for us here in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel wrote this down for our good. He's not patting himself on the back, you know, and saying, look how spiritual I am. Look at how awesome my prayers are. my prayers are so awesome, I'm going to write them down. He wrote this down. So that we can be encouraged by it, but also because God answered it directly. It's meant for us to be, uh, it's meant to be an encouragement to us. And it's also meant to be a model to us in some ways because here's the thing true prayer to God is based upon the relationship that God has established with you and maintains through Jesus Christ. True prayer is based upon the relationship that God has established with you and maintains through Jesus Christ. And as such, true prayer is informed by God's word. It is aligned with God's character and it depends on God's mercy. Prayer is informed by God's word, aligns with God's character, and depends on God's mercy And that is what we see here in Daniel chapter 9. The common thread that runs throughout the first 19 verses of Daniel 9 is what is known as the covenant. It is the covenant that God established with Abraham back in Genesis 12. A covenant is a fancy word, but it basically means that it is a bond between two parties. There is a stronger party that is the leader, the initiator, and the guarantor of that bond. And there is a weaker party who is the recipient of the bond initiated by the stronger party. The covenant that God made with his people, he is the stronger party, we as the weaker party, is summarized in these words from the scriptures, I will be your God and you will be my people. These are promises of intimacy and promises of protection. But there are consequences for disobedience against God that are spelled out in this covenant. Which is why Daniel is praying this prayer not from his house in Jerusalem but from exile in Babylon. The people of Israel, God's people, had broken his covenant. They had disobeyed him. They had gone off and they had worshipped other gods. They, they They had broken his commandments. They had done all kinds of things. And God had approached them with the prophets and he had said, return to me, repent, come back, or you will go into exile. And they didn't return to Him. And they didn't repent. And so they went into exile. But this covenant promise of God is distinct from any other human bond. Because if this were just a promise between human beings and one human being had treated another human being the way that we often treat God, you know what we would do? We would say, forget it, you're out. We are done. But God doesn't do that. He guarantees a continued relationship with his people, which is now us, despite our sin and disobedience, because he sends his son, Jesus Christ, who is perfectly obedient to him, and who dies a substitutionary death on the cross, that we might live in eternal relationship with God, where he takes our sin and he throws them away as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. It is this relationship it is this bond it is this promise it is this hope that you have that allows you like Daniel to pray to God with such boldness it is prayer that is informed by God's word that is aligned with God's character that depends on God's mercy and you can do that because your relationship with God is established in Christ So first, true prayer is informed by God's Word. So much of our confusion about prayer, I think, stems from this point. Because if you've ever thought about prayer, and you've ever thought about what the Bible says about God, surely you have asked yourself at some point some questions about prayer, right? Like this, wait a minute. If God is in control of everything, if He is sovereign, if He controls everything then why do we need to pray in the first place? What's the deal with that? Or maybe this one, God never seems to answer my prayers. Is he not hearing me? Does he not like me? Or is he not strong enough to do what I want him to do? This passage helps us answer some of these questions and gives us some instructions about how to pray. See, first of all, we're called to pray according to God's will and we determine God's will because it is laid out for us in God's Word. Like I'm sure you have done in the past, Daniel was wrestling with the age-old question regarding how long his suffering was going to last. He has been taken captive by the Babylonians, and, and now they've been defeated by the Persians. Darius was ruling over Babylon, yet Daniel's situation remained unchanged. He was still a prisoner there. And so Daniel does what God would have all of us do when we are facing such questions. He turns to the Bible. He pours over the scriptures. Verse 2 tells us that Daniel wanted to know how long the suffering of his people was going to last in exile. So he turns to God's word. And there he finds the answer. He finds the answer in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. Namely, this exile is going to last 70 years. It's going to last 70 years. Now, it's interesting then that that answer to Daniel's question is what actually inspires him to pray. It makes, this passage almost makes no sense if you read it. Daniel has a question. How long is our exile going to last? Hmm, let me look in the Bible and see if the answer is there. So he looks in the Bible. And the answer is there in Jeremiah. It's going to last 70 years. Why doesn't Daniel at that point just close the Bible and say, cool, got the answer, moving on. But instead, it is the answer to that question. It is his digging into the Bible That prompts him to pray and to confess and to ask God to be merciful in the first place. I think maybe this is a a big question that you might have with respect to prayer. Because if you've thought much about prayer at all, you've probably asked yourself some version of the question regarding the relationship between God and his sovereignty and his control over all things and prayer. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. If that is true, and the Bible says that it is true, that God controls everything, that is sovereign over all creation, uh, over everything, then why do we pray? Doesn't that sound like a waste of time? Doesn't it sound like a waste of time to, to pray if God already controls all things? In the movie Shadowlands, which is a fictional biography of C.S. Lewis, there's a point in the story where Lewis has fallen in love with this woman, Joy Davidman, and they ultimately get married, but but she has been diagnosed with, with a severe form of cancer, and she is receiving treatment for that cancer, and Lewis has been praying for her. And she goes into remission for a time. And C.S. Lewis is in his favorite pub in Oxford with his friends that he always meets, you know, at that pub with. Some are Christians, some are not. And they're talking about his situation. One of his friends is an atheist who believes that Lewis's children's stories, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia and all those kinds of things are silly. You know, they're just these silly fables about God who doesn't really exist and prayer is a waste of time. But one of his other friends intervenes, trying to be helpful in that conversation. He says this, Christopher can scoff, Jack, but that's what they called C.S. Lewis, Jack. Christopher can scoff, Jack, but I know how hard he's been praying, and now God is answering your prayers. And to this, Lewis replies, very softly but very earnestly, that's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. Now there are a couple of things important to note about this quote. The first is this, the real life human being C.S. Lewis didn't actually say this. The movie version of C.S. Lewis actually said this. And it doesn't actually take into account the full mystery of prayer. But in some ways there is some truth... To this statement. Because God mysteriously in his power and his sovereign control over all things. As he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Ordains both the ends. What is going to happen. And he also ordains the means to the ends. How what is going to happen is going to happen. And in his providence and in his wisdom he has ordained prayer. Prayer, seeking him, calling out to him, asking, seeking, knocking, persisting as one of the means by which he accomplishes his purposes in the world. There's an amazing passage in Revelation chapter 8, and a passage that I will tell you I had no understanding of until Sinclair Ferguson, in the commentary on this passage, actually referenced it. It, it, It's amazing. I'd encourage you to go read it. Go read Revelation 8 this afternoon. It's a vision, as Revelation is, kind of like parts of Daniel are, it's a vision of the angels' bringing to God, who is sitting on his throne in heaven, in this vision, they are bringing to God an offering of incense, which smells good to him, a pleasing aroma, you know, to God. They're bringing to God an offering of incense in a golden censer, which is just a bowl that holds incense and other things. And the text says that this incense, this pleasing aroma that, that, that God experiences is mixed with the prayers of the saints. In other words, the angels in this vision, in this golden bowl, are bringing your prayers to God. And then what happens? The angels take from the fire that burns at the altar, which is the place where God is sitting in this vision, they take coals and live fire from the place where God is sitting They put it in the bowl, which is mixed with the incense, and then the text says, and the angels go and cast it onto the earth. They spread it onto the earth. What is this saying? It is saying that your prayers become the instruments by which God intervenes in the world. The fire from the altar represents answered prayers that the angel scoops up, puts in the bowl, and then casts down onto the earth, God's activity on the earth. So in this sense, combining prayer with pouring yourself over and into God's word is powerfully about aligning our wills with the will of God. It is indeed changing you. It is changing you more into the image of Christ. Think about Jesus, for example. Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew the scriptures more than than anybody ever did, which is why it's ironic that the religious leaders in Jerusalem and, and and other places in Israel really insisted upon arguing about the Bible with him. It's so, semi pointless, but but it's but Jesus did not know the Bible simply because he was God. I used to think that Jesus was born knowing all of the Bible because he was born God. the the The, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus. Learned obedience through his suffering. He actually also learned the scriptures. When he was young, he dedicated himself to, to learning the Bible. And he knew that through reading the scriptures and, and through aligning himself with, with God's will, he knew what his purpose was. He knew he was going to the cross. He knew he was going to rise again on the third day. He repeatedly tried to tell his disciples that this is exactly what was going to happen. They didn't listen to him. But do you know what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he went to the cross? He still prayed that his will would be aligned with his Father's will. He still even though he knew what was going to happen, he said, God, my Father, if there is a possible way for this cup to pass from me, the cup is the pouring out of all of God's wrath upon him, To be put to death on the cross. It was a terrible cup to bear. A terrible cup to bear. (coughs) And he was wanting to know if there was another way that this could be born. Beside him going to the cross. If there's any way this cup can pass from me. Let it be so. But not my will. But your will be done. Aligning his will with his father's will. (coughs) Excuse me. This is prayer that is formed by God's word. So what this means for you and me is the same thing that it meant for Daniel. Prayer and the study of God's word are really two sides of the same coin. In fact, if you struggle to pray, like we all do, the Bible can become your manual for prayer. The Bible can be the the instruction book to teach you to pray. You can simply read a passage in the Bible and if that passage is... Uh, is leading you to understand God's grace more you can simply pray oh God can I please experience your grace more if that passage convicts you of something that is in your heart or in your life that is out of accord with God's will you can immediately pray and confess oh God forgive me for this and and take this away from me and make me make me more like Jesus The Psalms can simply become your prayers. If you you read the Psalms out loud with the heart of prayer, they can become your prayer life and your prayer book as they were and have been and are still for the church. The Lord's Prayer which is found in Matthew chapter 6 can become your template for prayer. You can pray the Lord's Prayer and fill in in each and every part of it whatever it is that is going on in your own life that aligns with that part of the Lord's Prayer. This is prayer that is informed by God's Word that more and more aligns you with God's will. The second thing we see in this passage is that we pray to align with God's character. The character of God is all over the place in Daniel chapter 9. He talks about his righteousness. He talks about his mercy. He talks about his power to save. And this righteousness of God has two aspects to it. And this is important for our understanding of prayer. The first aspect of the righteousness of God is his holiness. Starting in verse 7, Daniel juxtaposes the holiness of God to the sinfulness of human beings. God is absolutely perfect without spot or blemish in all that he is and all that he does. We, on the other hand, are rebellious against him. We, like the Israelites, consistently sin in both acts of commission and omission. We sin in commission, meaning that we read God's word and we understand what God expects of us, and we do the opposite. He tells us to be people of truth, yet we lie. He tells us not to commit adultery, yet we harbor lust in our hearts and we go out and seek those things. Those are sins of commission, but we also sin by omission. God is a God of absolute justice and he calls his people to act in justice. Yet we still ignore the poor. We ignore the suffering. We allow injustice to occur all around us and we turn a blind eye to do it. We fail to act. We fail to speak when we should. These are sins of omission. But the second part of the righteousness of God is his integrity. He's holy and he's filled with integrity, meaning that God always does what is right. This is, in fact, the simplest definition of the word righteousness. God is righteous in that he always does what is right. He always acts based upon his perfect character, meaning he always keeps his promises. And this is exactly how we see Daniel pray. God promised his people Israel that if, he disobeyed, if they disobeyed his commands they would go into exile and they did. It's a recognition both of God's holiness and his integrity. Prayer then is honest. It is recognizing who God is and who you and I are and not acting that we are any different. Acknowledging his holiness Acknowledging his righteousness, acknowledging your sinfulness, my sinfulness, and not pretending that the gap that exists between who he is and who we are is not immense, and that we can, in some ways, bridge the difference in ourselves because we can't. And that brings us to our last point prayers informed by God's word. It aligns with God's character and it depends wholly on God's mercy. Most of Daniel 9 is about Daniel interceding on behalf of the people of God who were in exile because of their disobedience. He's affirming what is true that God is righteous, and he's also affirming that he and his people are sinful. He's affirming that God was just and right to discipline them by sending them into exile. And now he calls on God to reverse his judgment. Not because he and the people of Israel have stopped sinning. It's not like they went into exile and they quote unquote learned their lesson. And they said, okay, we're going to be good boys and girls from now on, God. Just let us please go back to Jerusalem. It's not that at all. He is calling out for God to be Merciful, merciful. He's saying that only God can restore and that God delights to restore. Only God can restore. Look at verse 18. Daniel says, we do not present our pleas to you, O God, because of our righteousness. In other words, we didn't learn our lesson. We didn't become perfect. We're not going to be perfect. We submit our pleas to you, O God, because of your mercy. You Cannot save yourself. And I cannot save myself. We can never measure up to the standard of God. And we can really never measure up to the standard that our world would even say. Provides you with peace and joy and some level of freedom in this world. People who try to save themselves become disillusioned. Because if you're honest with yourself, you know that there's some hole there. There's some void in your life that just can't be filled with all of the things that we try to fill with it. You can't fill it with perfectionism. Because nothing you do is ever going to be perfect. And if you're relying on being perfect and doing perfect things to fill the hole in your life, you're constantly going to be disappointed and you're going to embitter yourself. Or you're going to be bitter at other people because they're not going to measure up to your expectations. You can't fill it with being the best at your job because someone's always going to be better than you are. You can't buy your way out of it because those things, like Jesus said, rust and thieves steal them and they're destroyed and you realize that that's meaningless. And you can't outrun them through the attempts of, you know, having the perfect body or you know, the perfect life for the perfect children because, well, you get old, if nothing else, or you get sick, or your children disobey. It just doesn't work. It's still there. It's nagging you that what you thought was going to provide ultimate meaning for you was a temporary fix at best. And when we can't fill that emptiness for meaning inside of us, when we when all of the things that we run to, when we're running away from God, when we're running away from His mercy, and we're trying to fill these voids and these holes with all these other things in the world, and they don't work because they don't, then what do we do? We try to numb it. We try to numb it, and we try to ignore the voices that are yelling at us all the time, that this isn't working. We don't want to hear that. So we try to cast it away it really is no wonder that addiction seems to be all around us in all kinds of ways especially around here in Houston where the message is that you can find joy and life and freedom in a life of comfort and ease if you can just make that life for yourself you'll be okay but some of you have made that life for yourself And some of your friends and your neighbors, by all the standards of the world, have made that life for themselves. But do you know what? You're not feeling okay. And they're not feeling okay. So if you've tried that, you know it's not true. And maybe you've seen your neighbors try that. Maybe they have figured out that it is not true as well. So what do we do? We try to numb that pain to stop that voice calling out to us that all is not well through prolific use of alcohol and drugs make us forget make us numb stop feeling f- escape into pornography or binge watching tv shows it kind of put us into another world and so we can pretend like that that's the world that we live in that we have different lives but listen to daniel Because Daniel admits what is true. None of this will work. We're not righteous. We can't fix ourselves. Only God can save. Only God can fill the void in your life that you feel. And he delights to do it. Do you know what happens? I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser. Do you know what happens at the end of 70 years of exile? Do you know what the answer to this prayer ultimately is? God takes his people from Jerusalem out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild their worship of him until they sin again and until Jesus comes and until Jesus once and for all stops the repeated cycle of sin and sacrifice and forgiveness Because His sacrifice is efficacious for all who trust in Him. And for all who trust in Him and then pray to God, He is carrying your prayers in His hands to His Father which become the instruments, the means by which He intervenes and acts on this earth and accomplishes His purposes. So my encouragement to you is to pray. And do not grow weary in prayer, to keep praying. Prayers that are informed by God's word, aligned with God's character, and dependent on God's mercy. Let's seek Him now. Oh God, we do call out to you. Only you can save. Only you are merciful. And we pray that you would be to us and that we would find joy in being able to approach you in prayer knowing that you hear knowing that you answer we are grateful for your mercy and and pray your continuance of it upon us in Jesus name, Amen